Tell me what you think about this idea. Extend the doors on the toilet stalls at Yankee Stadium all the way to the floor. Extend the doors on the toilet stalls at Yankee Stadium to the floor. Door comes down. Hide your feet. Yes. I like it. I like it a lot. It's good, right? I think it's fantastic. I think it's a fantastic idea. My guest today is Nicholas Bloom. He is a professor of economics at Stanford University, co-director of the Productivity, Innovation, and Entrepreneurship Program at the National Bureau of Economic Research, and he joins me today to discuss his recent work on uncertainty, productivity, and discuss all things economic policy. Uh, Nick, welcome to the podcast. Hi, good to be here. I want to start asking start asking you about your, your work on economic uncertainty, which uh, the general idea of uncertainty, uh, we heard a lot about that. In the uh, from Republicans in the early years, of the Obama administration, uh, there was great concern that the uh, there was uncertainty being created by uh, fiscal policy, the stimulus regulation that was going to be bad uh, for growth and cause a, a weak recovery. And you still hear about uncertainty uh, again today with trade policy, which I want to get into. Uh, into, but I wonder if you could just tell me is sort of the version of uncertainty and how that impacts the economy or could impact the economy that I just described. Is that, is that more or less how you mean it? Or is there a lot more nuance than what I've just sort of stumbled my way through? No, you're about right. I mean, there's a, there's a long uh, claim of argument in economics going back at least to, in fact, Ben Bernanke in 1983, one of the chapters of his PhD thesis, uh, claimed that uncertainty could cause recessions. And, you know, we know to uh, Tobin and Keynes were big proponents of uncertainty was damaging. So the view is really if uncertainty goes up, businesses pause investing and hiring, and that can cause a recession. And of course, when uncertainty drops down again, they resume and you know activity returns to normal. So in terms of recent times, you're, you're right, it's kind of uh, been a bipartisan concern. So I uh, got first involved in it. I did my PhD thesis on uncertainty. So I've been working on this since the 90s, but it became very politicized from about 2009 onwards with TARP and then the debt ceiling uh, debate and the fiscal cliff, et cetera, when the Republicans were claiming the Democrats were, uh, you know, killing the recovery with all the policy uncertainty coming out of White House and the Congress. And then it's now switched sides in the sense that the Democrats are claiming that Trump's, uh, you know, a trade war and change of mind, you know, the chaos inside the White House is causing uncertainty that's uh, uh, damaging U.S. growth. To start with sort of the, um, the argument back in you know, 2009 and so forth, looking back on it, what to what degree was there uncertainty being generated and was it being generated again by sort of Obama fiscal policy or was it being more really more generated by sort of Republican res response to Obama with things like the debt ceiling? I, I think it was a bit of both. I mean, I think part of the problem was it was a symptom of what I think was generally good medicine. So we had, you know, the housing uh, crisis and the collapse of Lehman's the financial crisis and the government needed to do something, and the something it did was tarp and the Fed slashed rates and introduced QE. And that, of course, itself was pretty radical. So these were new policies people hadn't seen before. I, I remember hearing, you know, discussions of trillions of dollars of uh, 
spending, uh, you know, stimulus being discussed, and that those were numbers were just astronomical. And so, not surprisingly, that generated massive policy uncertainty. So, some of it was just a necessary evil of what was generally, uh, you know, good interventions. You can think of it as, you know, to be precise, you know, side effects of generally good interventions. The other half of it that was, you know, unnecessary evil was debt ceiling debate, fiscal cliff, etc. And that was partisan fighting. Um, and that was really from kind of 2011 onwards. And that was really just unnecessary. We could have, you know, passed that without brinksmanship and last minute dispute. And I guess in many ways, you can say that's, you know, the outcome of a uh, democratic system. But unfortunately, it reflects the fact that power is pretty finely balanced. And, you know, Democrats, Republicans have come much more extreme in their views and even more so now than they were in the uh, 2010 plus. And, so, and, did, and did those two different sort of two different bouts of uncertainty, did, did they slow the economy? Yes. You know, there's been a long debate about why the recovery was so slow. And, you know, some people argue that it was because recoveries from financial crisis are always slow. Uh, so that, that that argument held pretty well. And, you know, for 2010, 11, 12, 13, even. But by now, you know, balances are back in health. So I think that argument's kind of passed us by. The other three stories you hear is one is that actually, you know, something I've been working on, which is productivity growth has been slowing down. So sure. actually, it's not the recovery is slow, it's that the trend growth rate is slowing down. The second is demographics, the fact that, you know, the working age population is slowing. And then the third has been that policy has been very uncertain, unpredictable, and it's held back the recovery. And I think there's some, some in all of that. So, yes, policy has been an issue. I don't think it's been the major reason for the slow recovery, though. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I definitely want to get in, in, in some of those things. And maybe I should have asked this at the beginning. When you're, when, you're, when you're trying to measure uncertainty, what are sort of the key things that you're looking at? Are you looking at uh, confidence surveys, the stock market? What are you, what are you looking at? <laughs> it's a great question. Uh, you know, uncertainty is really in the mind of the beholder. And so there's a range of what I would call proxies. None of them are perfect measures. So a classic one is stock market volatility. So if you look at, you know, S&P 500, the volatility bounces after extreme events, you know, 9-11, Gulf War One, Gulf War Two, OPEC, um, Lehman's crisis, the stock market, you know, bounces up and down. Another measure is forecast disagreement. So if you get a bunch of, you know, the 40, 50 forecasters, in the survey of professional forecasters, they disagree much more in periods of high uncertainty. Uh, more recently, I've been looking at newspapers. So, you know, even reasonably simplistic things like searching for the frequency of newspaper articles with the words uncertain or uncertainty, you know, economy, and then some basic policy words, you find huge surges around big events like elections, uh, TARP, uh, you know, the trade war dispute. So most of these indicators tend to move together. Uh, and they tend to rise in recessions and they also tend to rise around elections, you know, big shocks, uh, major wars, unexpected events, you know, like even going back in time, the assassination of JFK or the Cuban Missile Crisis generated big surges of measured uncertainty. And I, you know, I, I, I have in the past, I have frequently looked at, you know, the, uh, I think uh, a chart from, I think, website, I think it's the Economic Policy Uncertainty Index. I don't happen to have it in front of me, but was the uh, 2016 presidential, presidential election, was that a uncertainty shock? It was. You know, the two things happened in reasonably uh, quick succession, which was, of course, Brexit in the UK in June right. of that year. And then Trump's victory in November 2016. I think both of them reflect a bigger surge in policy uncertainty, which is, you know, in North America and in Europe, there's been a tick up in what I call populist candidates. So candidates that are 
both on the, you know, on the right and the left and are trying to break away from norms. And my view is I think this is going to continue because it reflects increasing inequality. So, you know, in my homeland, the UK, as in continental Europe with, you know, Mario Le Pen in France and Beppo Grillo in Italy, etc., there's been a rise of uh, alternative politicians. And it's not very surprising because we've seen moderate growth and rising inequality. So, you know, about half the population has seen no growth and they turn to alternative politicians. So 2016, for some reason, was the year that that tide broke. But, uh, you know, the signs of this have been rising for a while. Uh, I mean, on the other hand, we had Bernie Sanders. I mean, we had, you know, Sanders versus Trump. If that had been the presidential election, it's pretty, you know, they're pretty stark choices on either side. Well, 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 certainly if things are uncertain, we they can always grow more uncertain, I, uh, I suppose. Now, one and maybe, you know, and I, I don't want to mischaracterize the view here. But I, I, I recall uh, uh, Paul Krugman talking about the idea, the idea of confidence. I'm not sure if he was talking necessarily about your work, but he would talk about uncertainty and confidence. He was very dismissive, and I think he called he he, he was dismissive of what he called confidence fairies. Uh, the idea that we should be worried a lot about about things like business confidence or investor confidence, and that was just not really something policymakers uh, should take into account, and that's not something that really gave us much insight uh, into the state of, of the economy. I don't know if you recall him using that phrase, confidence fairies. What do you, uh, if you do, what do you think of that? <laughs> I, I definitely re- re- report, uh, recall Paul Krugman. Paul Krugman attacked us several times. I mean, I think that, you know, many people are in that category. So I have at least seven or eight times Paul Krugman's blog was very critical of our, our work. So, you know, to explain why, the main reason I think that triggered him off was uh, that the Romney campaign featured quite prominently our policy uncertainty work, using it to attack the Democrats. So we then became a political football. And, you know, Krugman decided to punch back. Krugman had two critiques, one of which I think is valid. One is I think is invalid. So, you know, the invalid one is he claimed you can't measure uncertainty. And, you know, he said, well, if you look at their newspaper work, you know, some of these articles aren't really discussing it, they're discussing something else. I mean, that's true, but if you look at, you know, tens of thousands of measures of uh, newspaper articles a month or different measures they of uncertainty, they tell you a pretty similar story that uncertainty was high. Um, so sure, you know, it's not perfect, but it definitely isn't meaningless either. His other criticism, I think, was more founded, which was that it's hard to tell what's cause and effect. So as we talked about earlier, uncertainty surged in 2009, and I think that was the symptom of the intervention rather than the actual cause of the downturn. So, you know, if you were to say, hey, uncertainty's caused the recession in, uh, you know, 08, 09, you'd be getting things completely the wrong way around. Interesting enough, Krugman's completely silenced now on the uncertainty criticism uh, because now it's been used, you know, as a democratic hammer to bash the uh, Republicans. And so I haven't heard a squeak out of him since then. So I think his criticism is still valid. Uh, it's not clear what's cause and effect. But I think the timing and his motivation is also pretty political. Well, right. And certainly people can 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 really create an extreme cartoonish version. I've I, I've heard people say I've heard some Republicans say that, well, um, the, re- the, the, re- the reason that, uh, you know, the markets began to sink, uh, you know, in 2007 and then 2000, 2008, that the market that the market is a forward looking mechanism. And, and already there was uncertainty about the election and uncertainty about Obama, <laughs> even though he wasn't even president. Yet people were already factoring that into account. Therefore, it sort of preemptively uh, crashed the economy. Like I said, there's certainly a, a cartoonish version of what I think is probably a is a pretty, pretty valid theory. And you mentioned uncertainty today with the trade policy. 
are are we are we seeing uh, you know your measures react to um, what is a pretty different direction in American trade policy? Yeah, very much. So policy uncertainty from uh, you know the U.S. trade war or the threats of trade war has jumped a lot. So we have a global measure of economic policy uncertainty, and that's a I'd say a pretty high level. Uh, much of that is emanating from the U.S. and is spilling over. You know, it's not just China. The U.S. has been arguing with, of course, as you know, it's Canada and Mexico, but Europe and Japan. All corners of the earth. We're, <laughs> we're fighting everybody. Yeah, you know, I, I was watching Young Guns, that you know, classic twenty-year-old movie, and when the guy says, "I think I like these odds," when he's fighting, you know, a hundred people, but it, it feels it, <laughs> it feels like that. I mean, I think part of the issue. So, look, the U.S. economy is clearly doing pretty well. So, you know, in all fairness to Trump, the economy is continuing. It's maybe picked up a little bit, not much. I'd say it's pretty much continuing over the expansion that started under Obama. But expansions get harder and harder to maintain. So, you know, maintaining the reasonably strong labor force growth and, you know, GDP growth rates for the last couple of years is an achievement. On the other hand, it's possible it would have been higher and it's being held back by policy uncertainty. And I think that the issues that people are concerned about is the current administration uh, you know, Trump in particular changes his mind a lot and doesn't listen to his advisors. So it makes things very unpredictable. And that has generated quite noticeably an increase in policy uncertainty. And that spilled out from the U.S. to abroad. Is there any way even roughly to begin to measure what the possible drag on economic growth is from higher uncertainty, either generally or or specifically what we've seen lately? I mean, how much faster I mean, might the economy be grow, have grown at four point? Four percent in the second quarter, rather than a revised four point two percent. Do you have? Is there a way even to give a kind of a rough, kind of a rough back of the envelope estimate of that? It's a great question. So we estimated for the Great Recession, so oh eight oh nine, that the big surge in uncertainty there probably added a couple of percent drop in GDP. So how much did GDP drop? Well, versus trend by the end of two thousand and nine, America is probably kind of seven, eight percent, maybe lower than you would have anticipated before. You know, if you if you if you plotted a straight line from 2006 onwards, you'd have been about eight percent above by the end of 2009. I estimate uncertainty accounted for maybe a quarter to a third of that. Um, So now the increase in uncertainty under Trump is not nearly as big as that. Uh, Maybe, you know, something like a third. But so you'd be right in thinking maybe it's reduced GDP growth by about half a percent. So it's not an enormous number, but it's not nothing either. The other concern is the types of investment that are most sensitive to uncertainty are also the types of long run investments in things like R&D, training, intangibles, because they're the ones that are hardest to reverse. And so that's also the types of thing that drives long run productivity growth. So I worry slightly more uh, about long run growth, you know, firms pulling back from uh, R&D investments than I do so much actually about short run impacts. Uh, well, good. You uh, uh, very conveniently gave me a nice segue into the. Um, I, I want to talk about uh, productivity growth. Uh, I think that when you look at you know, like what is wrong with the U.S. economy, I think most economists would point to productivity growth, which has been very weak during the recovery and really began to downshift before the Great Recession. And you, you, you author an interesting, and we, you know, there's been a lot of theories. You know why that's the case. You uh, co-authored a paper called "Our Our Ideas Getting Harder to Find." Uh, Jason Furman brought up the paper in, uh, in a uh, recent episode I did with him, and uh, and and your and your thesis uh, simply it's just getting a lot harder to find those new ideas which we can turn into goods and services and techniques and to make workers more productive and it's 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 just it's just harder than it used to be is that is that it or am I missing yes that? 
No, that's exactly right. So, <laughs> you know, it's, I should give full credit to Bob. So my co-authors, Chad Jones, Mike Webb and John Van Rienen. But we should also give full credit to Bob Gordon, who's been pushing, you know, a broader version of this for a while. So, you know, I think you can break history into three periods. So one is from, you know, the dawn of mankind up until about 1750, when productivity growth was close to zero. So, you know, 1700 Britain, we want a lot. Uh, more productive than the Romans and you know a couple of thousand years have progressed and then we have the industrial revolution starts about 1750 and from the industrial revolution until around 1950 productivity growth rates start to take off so they rise to about one percent by 1800 and are slowly rising to about three percent percent by the 1950s and this is the era that we call standing on the shoulders of giants so the idea that if you invent penicillin or come up with electricity or air conditioning uh, or you know electric motors that it makes future inventors more productive and so productivity accelerates we see uh, also you know big universities start to focus on research major companies for example edison Labs, start doing commercial r&d and now We've entered the third phase, which has really been from around 1950 to now, where we see productivity growth rates are slowly falling back down again. So they fell from about 4% in the 50s down to about 3 in the 80s, you know, 2 in the 90s, and they're now down to about 1%. And it looks like, you know, quite simply, it is coming harder and harder to come up with new innovations. So we're actually spending more and more on R&D. So real R&D expenditures gone up about tenfold, but productivity growth rates are falling. And the only way to square the circle is it's simply harder to come up with new ideas. And when I talk to my colleagues, you know, I'm out in Stanford, so you can imagine I'm in the, you know, the, the center of Silicon Valley and all the science and technology, and I'll tell you the same story. So it's just becoming more and more expensive and difficult to push the frontier out because we've already made such good, strong progress. First of all, when you, uh, is that is that accepted? Do, do people accept that? Because, you know, boy, I'll, you know, we get... Uh, you know, I'll talk to people in Silicon Valley, and obviously, there's a lot of optimism. There's a lot, you know, there's a lot going on. Um, you, know, you know, artificial intelligence, autonomous vehicles, uh, using, you know, using big data. You know, we we don't know all the possible uses for AI. There seems to be a lot of enthusiasm. And there seems to be a lot of ferment of ideas. Is your theory accepted by people who are sort of in, you know, who are technologists or in the business as opposed to academia? Mostly, I mean, I should say we we got to be careful about about you know history predicting uh the future so there's no, one thing is to say there's no reason why we couldn't enter a fourth you know period uh i'd be i'd be confident in saying i don't see productivity growth exploding in the next 10 probably 20 years but it's hard to predict beyond that so we could easily have you know a nano period or something else that suddenly in 2030 2040 things take off so the technologists tend to look ahead I don't think anyone really disagrees with the historical numbers they just claim i mean that there, there have been claims as well you know, remembering there's been claims that, you know, there's a new beginning repeatedly. So, you know, the 80s and 90s, even 2000s, were promised the IT miracle and it never really came to pass. So I'd be slightly skeptical of anyone claiming, uh, you know, you know, driverless cars are going to you know change things, but they might do. The other thing I should point out is it's not such depressing news. One percent productivity growth a year is is amazing by long run standards. It's just that we've come we've come off an incredible period in human history. So, you know, post-World War II is outstanding. But if you think of, you know, a thousand or five thousand years, one percent is amazing. And over 30 years, that's doubling outcome. So I, it's partly we, we, we're a bit spoiled. We've had, uh, you know, amazing period of recent productivity growth and one percent still pretty good. This, uh, you were an essay in foreign affairs. And let me just quote uh, briefly something you wrote. You wrote, not long ago, I was among the economists who took a relatively optimistic view toward declining productivity growth. 
The declining rate, I argued, did not necessarily reflect a long-run trend of slow productivity growth. I attributed it instead to a temporary effect of the global financial crisis, anticipated a turnaround coming down the pike. Since then, my per- perspective has changed. Is it, was it, is it this paper that sort of changed your perspective, made you sort of yeah. less optimistic? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, it is. I mean, this is the value of research. So I've just been looking at the U.S. I've been looking at recent data, and I, you know, productivity numbers look a lot like the stock market. They, you know, they, they spike up and down. Uh, it's hard to discern too much of a trend. But you know, I started to look more broadly. So work exactly at working on this paper, we started to look at not just aggregate figures, but industry by industry and firms. Use the census data to look at individual plants. We went back in time to look at further data in the U.S. We also looked at another a number of other countries, so across the OECD, and you know. When you take it in the round, it seems pretty clear, actually, that productivity growth is slowing down. So, you know, it's it's a similar thing to climate change. I wouldn't say everyone's agreed, but broadly the consensus, the Earth's heating up, of course, this winters and summers, and no one's quite sure why. But, you know, there's an upward trend, uh, much like there's a downward trend in productivity growth. Uh, I I think someone listening to this podcast would think, how how can it not be that ideas are getting easier to find. Um, I mean, it's, we have, you know, now we have the internet. It's so easy to communicate. It's much easier to do research. You know, Joel Mokier has written about all these, you know, great new tools we have, not just, you know, the you know, internet being one of them to, we, you know, have, we have, we can sift through big data. How could it not be the case they're getting easier to find? We have so, we have so much better information, ability to access information and to process information. That's true. Um, and without that, you know, we, we might have ground to a halt if we're still trying to, you know, Make research using stones and sticks as we were ten thousand years ago. That will get anywhere. So you know, I, I think that the the, greatest, the best anecdote would be, for example, looking around, walking around Stanford campus. So at least in economics, uh, it used to be you did a three-year PhD. Now six years is the norm, and many people are going for postdocs. At least in economics, it used to be you know thirty years ago it was mainly theory, which is cheap. You use a pen and a paper. Now there are people running you know millions, multi-million dollar RCTs or using vast data sets. So we're training researchers for much longer. We're using far more expensive resources. It's just making the costs of doing that research so much harder. And on top of that, you know that you know, there are now dozens and dozens of people that looked over the same area that you're looking at now. And, you know, it's harder and harder to come up with new ideas. So, again, I don't want to claim that it's necessarily this way forever. We could turn a corner in 10 or 20 years. Uh, it's just it's pretty clear from the last 50 years productivity growth is slowing down. So my best bet for the next 10 or 20 will be you know, more of the same. If, if you're correct, it is going to be very hard for the U.S. economy to grow at any at close to the sorts of, uh, uh, I think, claims some politicians have been making. I mean, if the economy has grown a bit over 3% annually since World War II, it's going to be pretty hard for it to grow a bit over 3% over the next generation if productivity growth is sort of you know stuck at the level that you've indicated. I mean, we would need... You know, we would need much faster productivity growth given the slowing growth uh, in, in the labor force. Yeah, you're right. I, I mean, I don't think many people genuinely think it's going to grow up 3% over the next, you know, five to 10 years. So it may do this year. Um, the tax cuts will, you know, will pump prime the economy. So we're going to get faster growth over the medium term. Uh, you know, only three things, you know, basically drive growth. One is productivity. That's about 1% a year. I don't see that ticking up that much. You know, the tax cuts may put it up a bit, but, you know, I doubt a huge amount. The second is demographics. Uh, so we have more workers. 
demographics of, you know, the labor force has been growing at about half a percent a year. Again, that's not actually changed that much. In fact, you know, the immigration reforms will probably, if anything, slow that down. Um, and then finally, capital accumulation. So input of, you know, machines and intangible capital that may rise a bit. The tax reforms have made it more attractive to invest. Uh, you know, the best numbers uh, I've seen, for example, the ones that um, Jason Furman and Rob Barrow put out, you know, suggest we'll get a bit, but, you know, more than 0.1, at most of GDP. So, yeah, if, if we are, uh, you know, if we can maintain two and a half percent, that would be an achievement. I just don't see three percent happening. Uh, one one line from your paper, um, hopefully I've, I've written it down correctly, uh, is that the economy has to double its research efforts every 13 years just to maintain the same overall rate of economic growth. What are the policy implications of that? It's, uh, it, it sounds like that we should be spending at, at least vastly more on basic research funding, at least at the federal level. Is that the policy implication I should take from that? <laughs> yes, I mean, if, Seems if, like if we, yeah, if we want faster growth, you know, I, the caveat on this is this faster growth doesn't come next year. So, you know, politically, it's never that appealing. Politicians want stuff to happen now. You know, it's like if you've dealt with, you know, if you have kids age five or six, you know, everything needs to be immediate. There's no tomorrow with them. So uh, R&D increasing, you know, uh, for example, National Science Foundation funding, increasing the generosity of the R&D tax credit more generally increasing training in STEM, which of course makes it slightly cheaper to run research labs. All of these things would increase growth rates. It probably wouldn't start happening for, you know, three to five years. Uh, but yeah, if you want to maximize growth rates over the next 10 or 20 years, that's it's very clear that's what we want to do. Uh, of, course, of course, there's some sacrifice, you know. We have to raise taxes now, and, that, and that's hard. It's hard to persuade voters to uh, spend a bit more now for, you know, some kind of payoff down the road. And, and does it have to be, at the, I mean, uh, you know, again, I, I read about how much, you know, some of the big tech companies are spending uh, on research and development. It seems like a lot of money. Um, is that good enough or, or, or does this really have to be a more uh, kind of a government effort ultimately? It, it's a bit of both. So uh, research and development, I mean, explicitly includes the concepts of research, which is basic research and development, which is bringing ideas to market. And the tech companies tend to be more heavy on the D. They want to make money, so they'll take some, you know, some invention spun off out of, say, Stanford or MIT, and bring it to market. But you also need those inventions coming out of Stanford and M MIT. So, you know, the basic computing inventions, nanotechnology, some of the biotechnology, most of this came out of labs of, uh, you know, universities, and that's funded heavily by federal. Not entirely, but a lot of it's funded by federal support. So I think both are important. It's hard actually to get growth without both federal support and university push, but also uh, big business. So yeah, hey, uh, coming, back, coming back to it, NSF plus R&D tax credit, collectively, that will be the most effective package. And we, we had Google's chief economist, Hal Varied, on the podcast a while back, and I you know, asked him you know, some similar questions about productivity and what's going on with it. And he seemed to uh, be a, uh, a proponent of the idea that you know, that sort of the uh, the productivity innovation boom is here. It's just not sort of evenly distributed. That you do have companies like Google uh, and Apple, which are very innovative. They spend a lot of R and D, uh, but these these innovation advances just don't seem to be spreading to the rest of the economy. It's like they're they're stuck at these like leading edge companies and. They're not going out to the rest of the economy, and I guess you can point to other other times where I guess like with electrification, it took a while for these advances to spread throughout the economy. Might that be the case here that there's a lot of productivity? It's just it's sort of just in very few places, and it, we just 
I'm not sure if it's a policy issue or just kind of a time and a management issue uh, that you have these companies just aren't taking advantage of these advances, whether it's, you know, AI or something else. Yeah, maybe. I, Ten years ago, I'd have been more sympathetic to that view. So there is a, there's an argument, there's something called general purpose technology. So these are defined as technologies that are huge breakthroughs and change society. And I think Tim Bresnahan was one of the people that has been pushing this idea. And people talk about the steam engine or the electric motors, massive GPTs. And the third one that people have talked about is computers. But, you know, computers have been around for a while. I had my first job in uh, 1994. And back then, I remember when I started work, I was given a computer, my own computer and an email account. So, you know, computers have been around now over, what, 30 years. Um, So, sure, now it's the Internet. But the Internet, I mean, uh, maybe it takes time to spread out. But, you know, by now we've seen an incredibly long period of time. Uh, computers have been mainstream for, you know, two, three decades. So I find it hard to think it's taken that long for these technologies to spread out. And uh, just as we sort of uh, wrap up here, uh, we talked a little bit about the things going on at these big technology companies. Some people do not view them as being a positive at all uh, for innovation. There's been a lot of criticism that that the uh, you know the big companies are actually suppressing innovation. They're monopolies. They're buying. They'll buy up these small companies and sort of and sort of disappear them before they can get up and scale. Uh, a lot of talk about antitrust. What what is your take on sort of these big? mega companies the mega platforms and whether they need to be you know broken up or, or some other some other change you know needs to happen which is apparently the uh, it's a hot topic right here in washington these days it is you know partly it's motivated politically both on the left and the right i'm not I, i'd say generally i'm not in favor of that um you know i i was listening to your podcast the previous podcast you had with rob atkinson i you know i think we're pretty aligned big companies do most r d they undertake most patents they treat their workers better and they're really the drivers of productivity and growth and if we start to beat up on big tech it, it's america's loss and to be honest it's probably you know china and russia's gain that both countries would like to see our tech chance uh weakened um you know the other issue is if you take for example facebook buying up instagram so everyone said, well, look, Instagram is going to be a competitor to Facebook. Then they bought it up. Right. You know, on the other side of that, by buying up Instagram, they pumped billions of dollars back into venture capitalists. And sitting out here in Stanford, one of the things I see is venture capitalists have just unbelievable amounts of money to fund every startup in sight. And the reason they're doing that is they're looking ahead and they're seeing, you know, their startups potentially being funded by or bought up by Facebook or Google. So you could argue it's like a pattern maybe facebook and google buying up these firms maybe suppresses some of them in the short run but in the long run you know it's throwing gas on the uh, fire of innovation because it's throwing money into the system and encouraging the next wave of innovators so uh, to me as yet i don't see any motivation sure it's maybe not perfectly competitive but i think we're much better off with strong uh, you know massive r&d spending firms like google than without them my guest today has been nicholas bloom nick thanks a lot for coming on the podcast Great. Thanks very much.